All right. Good morning, Hope Chapel. When Lizette preached on October 17th, she began by honoring the men. It was wonderful. Many of you men weren't here because that was the day of the men's retreat. So I encourage you to go back and listen to her words. I would like to return the favor and honor the women today. Genesis teaches us that the image of God is male and female. To you women in the room, I want to say that you are as much in the image of God as men. The world needs the part of God's image that you uniquely bear. Hope Chapel needs your leadership, your voice, and your prayers. Keep it up. And I need you to help me with your opinion. Can you do that? (laughs) I have a poll, and I want only the women to vote. Here's the situation. I'm going to set a scene for you. A woman, a mother of several children, has recently died. You are a historian writing a book about her. You have come to the chapter where you are exploring her relationship with her children, and your goal is to discover her deepest desires for her children. You have to choose one of the following four sources. Which do you think would be most likely to reveal her deepest desires for them? One, a recording of all of her conversations with her husband about her children. Two, recording of all the prayers she prayed in secret for them. Three, a book she wrote providing advice to young adults which she dedicated to her children. Four, letters which she wrote to each child when she was on her deathbed. Now, there's no right answer. (laughs) I'm just interested. So for those of you who think number one, just raise your hand. For those of you who think number two, raise your hand. For those of you who think number three, raise your hand. And those of you who think number four, raise your hand. A few. Okay. Thank you very much. You voted twice. <laughs> I did ask for your opinion, Jenny. Okay. Now, shifting gears. Thanks to the pandemic, we haven't had a gifts night here in quite a while. So I've built up a good inventory of funny signs. And here I find a captive audience. (laughs) Which, of course, I can't resist. So here are a few from a series I call Missing Something. When you see what is missing, yell it out. What's missing? Words. Thank you. (laughs) To learn what's missing from this picture requires a story from Wittenberg 2017. Some of you may not be familiar with what that is. One of the greatest privileges for Amy and me has been to lead with a phenomenal team of brothers and sisters from Europe and around the world, a seven-year initiative called Wittenberg 2017. Our mission was to grieve the great divisions in the church, which came about because of sin, and pray for Jesus to bring 
about the unity in his church that he is worthy of. This morning, I want to tell a story about the very beginning of that seven-year journey. And that story begins actually right there. The date was Sunday, October 24th, 2010. I came up after the service for prayer. I was about to embark on my first trip to Wittenberg, Germany, the birthplace of the Protestant Reformation. John Bybee was on the prayer team. And after he prayed for my trip, he gave me a prophetic word. He said, as you walk through Wittenberg, look for John 17. So when I was there just a few days later, I remembered and I carefully studied stained glass windows, pamphlets, and anywhere else that I might find John 17 inscribed. Nothing. But when I came into Martin Luther's home church in Wittenberg, I saw that the pulpit was open. This was very unusual. Almost always the pulpits in European churches are roped off. And this was Martin Luther's pulpit. Now, I knew that there would be a Bible in that pulpit. And I remembered John's word, and I hoped against all hope that perhaps it would be open to John 17. I also knew that I wasn't supposed to go into that pulpit. <laughs> but I figured that if a stern German guard yelled at me, I could always plead being an American. So I climbed the steps, and you can imagine my disappointment when I reached the top, and here's what I saw. Missing something? Missing everything. Was it a fake Bible? I went closer, and when I did, I discovered that it was open to the page between the Old and New Testaments, the only blank page in the whole Bible. Now, that is a very appropriate image for this morning. We've been in a series from the Old Testament, but Matt is taking a break during Advent, and next week we'll preach on Mary and the virgin birth. So here we are, on the blank page between the Old and New Testaments. What does it mean to be here? I did not know what to make of that image until our first gathering in 2013 when we met with European leaders to discuss the idea of Wittenberg. Friedrich Aschoff, the dignified and prophetic leader of the German Lutheran Charismatic Renewal, rose and asked to respond to the story I told and the picture I put up of this Bible. Here's what he said. He said, let's look at the last verse of the Old Testament. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And now, Friedrich said, let's look at the first verse of the New Testament. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Friedrich went on. These verses are connected the blank page is a bridge that teaches us that the hearts of the patriarchs of Israel, 
were and are turned towards Jesus, their son. And Jesus' heart was and is turned towards his Jewish forefathers. Should not, Friedrich said, our hearts also be turned towards them. As we wrap up the important series on the Old Testament, not wrap up, but take a pause, let's heed Friedrich's counsel. Let's take these fathers from the Old Testament into our own hearts, as they are in God's hearts, for they are his friends. And he calls Israel his bride, just as the church is called Christ's bride. So this means we have to take their descendants, the modern-day Jews, into our hearts as well. The hearts of the children turning to the fathers. We can rejoice in our day there is already some remarkable turning. One sign of this can be found right here in Hope Chapel. Bob O'Dell partnered with an Orthodox Jew to create a resource called Root Source that connects Christians with Jews who want to help them be better Christians. Even Jews who do not believe in Jesus are finding a place in their heart for the followers of Yeshua. Can you see the hearts of the fathers turning to the children and the children to the fathers? And that is the theme of this morning's sermon. Due to the way that this sermon came about, I believe God has a prophetic word for us this morning. The hearts of fathers and mothers at Hope Chapel turning to the younger generation and the hearts of precious young adults in our congregation softening towards us who are in the older generation. We see plenty of examples of broken relationships between the generations. Just look at the world around us. We can find this in our own families and even here at Hope Chapel. But where do we look to find a model of a healthy relationship? We have seen in our sermons this fall that the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, along with their wives, all made serious parenting errors. Should we go back further to Noah and Adam, lot of failure. No, we have to go back even further. Before the foundation of the world, the Father and the Son existed in perfect unity. Their unity was not a monolithic singularity, not a uniformity, but a relational unity between distinct persons. Theologians tell us that the love between the Father and the Son was so intense and so meaningful that that love itself was also a person, the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the love between the Father and the Son. What does the unity of the Trinity look like? Scripture gives us some of the characteristics of the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm guessing the lesser, weaker ones that we can actually begin to take in. Milk instead of meat. Water instead of wine. These include peace, 
patience, confidence, blessing, transparency, trust, gentleness, attentiveness, nearness, truth, submission, kindness, joy, sacrifice, humility, respect, responsibility, honor, tenderness, delight. Does that sound good? Wow. In Matt's sermon last week, we saw some hints of the Trinity in the Old Testament. Here are a few New Testament glimpses into the unity of the Trinity. Matthew 3, 16 through 4, 1. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Luke 10. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. John 10. The reason, Jesus says, my Father loves me, he knows the Father loves him, is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to pick it up. This command I received from my Father. And one more, John sixteen twenty six. When the advocate comes the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. Can you see some of these attributes we looked at in just those four passages? Don't you want your relationships to look like this? Perhaps we might even say we have a deep desire for our relationships with God and with each other to look and sound like this. Good news. Those who believe in Jesus are invited into the unity of the Trinity. It's as if the three persons of the Trinity were dancing this dance of love. And suddenly they opened up their circle and began beckoning to you, to me. Come join, they joyfully cry. The blood of the Lamb has made a way. Where in Scripture do we find the invitation into the unity of the Trinity? 
Before he went to the cross, Jesus prayed for us. I mean literally us. Here at Hope Chapel. Really? It's the one recorded prayer from Jesus, the head of the church, for his body across time and around the world. How do we know this? This is what Jesus says. I do not ask for these only, and when he says these only, he has just prayed for the disciples specifically, the 11 in the room. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. Here we are. Isn't that awesome? And what did he pray for us? He could have prayed for anything. Doctrinal correctness, for example. Hey, a heart to serve the poor. Sexual and marital purity. Power for healing. To worship in spirit and in truth. And the list could go on. All good things, all commended or even commanded by Jesus. But when he went to the Father on our, behalf, he did, on our behalf, he didn't pray for any of these good things. Here's what he prayed. And I want to go through it kind of sentence by sentence with only a few comments since it is so important and so rich. Just soak it in. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. Do you see the invitation into the unity of the Trinity? I firmly believe that this would be considered heretical to pray if Jesus, our Lord, had not prayed it first. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' only recorded prayer for us is also his only recorded prayer for world evangelization. We may not understand why missions is connected to unity in Jesus' head. But it seems to me that we should take him seriously. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Jesus doubles down. It is for complete unity, not half-hearted, not false, not partial. Also, note that from Jesus' perspective, the key to unity is the glory he has given us. Do we recognize the glory in our brother and our sister? Then the world will know that you sent me. He also doubles down on the connection between unity and missions. So I will too. I would like to take this moment to recognize my friend Danny Malakowski. Stand up, Danny. Danny, yes. 
Danny is with us from Phoenix. He's the president of Antioch Network, and he has been pressing into this connection between missions and unity for over a decade. So few see that this connection clearly exists in Jesus's mind, but you've been peering into this mystery. Thank you, Danny. He goes on, then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Do you see once again the invitation into the dance of love that exists in the Trinity? The world is supposed to know, the world, that the Father sent and loves Jesus and they're supposed to know that he loves us with the same love that he loves Jesus. Then he prays, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Jesus has prayed for us. Now he prays about us. His one request to the Father for you and me is that we would be with him. Do you remember when Earl preached that wonderful sermon focused on the word with? I love that word. Jesus wants to be with us. He continues, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So the invitation of the unity into the unity of the Trinity deepens here. Before time began, the Father gave glory to the Son. And he wants us to see it. Our bridegroom wants to show off for us. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. So remember, Jesus is praying about you. He's commending you before the Father. Because you know that Jesus comes from the Father. He is saying that you have entered into the knowledge of the Father that exists within the Son. Well done. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them, and that I myself may be in them. And this is the end of his prayer. So in this last part, Jesus presents to the Father the goal of his revelation of the Father. Jesus reveals the Father to us. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What's the goal of that? That the same kind of love the Father has for Jesus we'd have that same kind of love for Jesus. And that he himself would be in us. Remember what I said earlier about the love between the Father and the Son and who that is. Friends, he is here talking about the Holy Spirit. So what do you think of Jesus' prayer for you? Is it good? Does it touch your heart? 
does it make you love him more? Oh, the depths of this prayer. Jesus' deepest desire for us is that we would enter into the unity of the Trinity, that we would feel the Father's love as Jesus feels it, that we would love Jesus as the Father loves him. I believe this prayer lifts the veil on Jesus' deepest desire for the people of God. How can I say that? Well, I didn't. You guys said it. The women said it. Did you notice that they all picked the prayers prayed for the children as expressing the deepest desire? And there was a few people who picked the letter written on before the before dying. So this combines both of those. It's a prayer prayed before the Father, before he goes to the cross. Deepest desire. Now, did you catch that entering into the unity of the Trinity is not primarily an individual event? It's not you, yeah, and me over here, and the guys in the church over there, Jesus is praying for a corporate reality. He is praying for our relationships with one another. The first part of Jesus' prayer is that the unity between you and me and you and each other and you and those guys in the other church would be of the same quality as the unity between the Father and the Son. What would this even look like? What would it be like to feel full joy in one another? To love others and be loved by brothers and sisters the way God loves his own son. I've been privileged to get a few foretastes of this kind of unity. In fact, before I go to what I'm going to show next, I just want to say we experienced it this morning. We at Hope Chapel were led in worship by a Roman Catholic brother, Philip Owens. And his team included his children, Sam and Bethany. So it was a beautiful picture of cross-denominational, intergenerational unity that we experienced this morning. And Philip wisely didn't lead with differences. Let's bring out the differences. Philip wisely led us to look and focus on what we have in common, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But I've got another glimpse to show you so that you might desire unity as deeply as Jesus does. Returning to the Wittenberg 2017 initiative, the culmination of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation was a day of repentance on Friday, November the 3rd, 2017, in Wittenberg, in the main city hall. In fact, we took over the hall after um, Angela Merkel had it. So she had it, and then we got it next. Six hours of history that day was followed by two hours of repentance, which led into a Shabbat celebration led by the Messianic Jews. One of their worship leaders called out to the 
500 people in the room, everybody dance, which I thought was a terrible idea. (laughs) Good thing I wasn't leading worship (laughs) for many reasons. And nobody who was there will ever forget the joyous unity that the Holy Spirit visited us with that night. It was a small window into heaven. Do you want to peek? If you get all the people, you can make a big circle and go all the way around. There are five generations represented in this video, babies to octogenarians. There are 16 nations, well, 17 if you count Texas separately. There are clergy and laity, missionaries and nuns. There are nobility and plain folk, scholars and students. There are Roman Catholics, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Baptists, Anglicans, Pentecostals, non-denominational, Evangelicals, Mennonites, Bruderhof, Amish, Armenian Orthodox, and Messianic Jews. It was truly glorious. And it was just a glimpse, a small appetizer of what it was like, what it is like to enter into the unity of the Trinity. Let's bring this back to the theme of the sermon, turning the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. What does our understanding of what unity is, how Jesus prayed for it, and what it feels like apply to the relationships between the generations. In Ephesians, Paul has a special echo of Jesus' invitation into the unity of the Trinity. As he's praying, Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul is saying that our relationships of parent to child and child to parent find their source and their goal in the unity of the Trinity. In certain ways, this is the most foundational relationship for all humans. Not all of us in this room are married. So we may not have a relationship to a husband or a wife. Only children don't have the sibling relationship. But every one of, this, uh, every one of us in this room is a son or a daughter. Each of us has two biological parents and maybe other adoptive parents. The parent-child relationship is common to every person, and Paul traces it back to the Trinity. And the Trinity is the Father and the Son and the love between the Father and the Son. Do our relationships between the generations look like the relationships we've seen in the Trinity? Are they characterized by these words? Sometimes, yes. But if we're honest, some or maybe most of the time, maybe not so much. So what's the problem? 
Here's one possible problem. False unity. Where problems and crucial differences are swept under the rug, hidden away so they don't threaten our unity. We don't want false unity. The unity of the Trinity is not false unity. But Scripture does not present false unity as the main enemy of true unity. I have a lot I could say on the topic of false unity, but there's no time to go there this morning. I will only say this. False unity is the enemy's attempt to counterfeit true unity. All of the enemy's attempt to counterfeit God's glorious realities are only hazy and distinct shadows. If we spend our time trying to stamp out shadows, the enemy has us right where he wants us, focused on him and his works instead of on Jesus and Jesus' works. So false unity is a problem, but it's not the main problem that keeps us from true unity. And certainly I don't see it as a big issue between the generations. So here's another candidate. Division. Unity. Division. Seems logical, right? Actually, once again, this is not the problem. There is division in the Trinity in the sense of distinction, different persons. But these different persons are united. They are one. Last week, Matt explained that the word for unity in the Old Testament used in the Shema, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, is also the same word used in Genesis 2 in reference to marriage. The two will become one. Here are two distinct people, a man and a woman, who enter into a relationship of unity without either losing their unique personhood. As Matt indicated, the problem is not that somehow they need to become the same person. I am so glad, Amy, that you are not me. <laughs> In other words, the problem is not division either. So what is the problem? The New Testament teaches us that what opposes unity is neither false unity nor division. What opposes unity is hostility. Ephesians 2. For he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one. Do you see unity happening here? Do you see the reference back to Genesis 2? And has destroyed the barrier. What's the problem? The dividing wall of hostility. But what is hostility? We have seen a list of words that describe what unity looks like. I actually have a list of words that correspond to them that describe hostility, and it's right there if you're interested. But I would like to focus on two aspects of hostility this morning. I choose these two in particular for two reasons. One, because Jesus's, Jesus focuses on them. And two, because they unfortunately characterize too much of our intergenerational relationship. Here is the first one. Anger. This takes us back to our first image. Coincidence? 
I think not. <laughs> what is the danger of anger? Thank you. I'll be here all morning. Well, in Matthew 5, Jesus makes it clear. You have heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. So Jesus is saying that anger is a sin of violence. Anger is akin to murder. It is like murder of the heart. He's drawing in this way on much from the Old Testament. The psalmist often speaks of words like swords. Who in this room has not felt angry words pierce them? Angry words damage our souls. They are dangerous for those who hear them, and they are dangerous for those who speak them. We will be held to account by God for every careless, angry word we speak. I am so thankful to Matt for speaking on the fear of the Lord. We should be afraid to speak words of anger. but we are not. Anger runs rampant between the generations in the church. Both young and old feel angry often and often because they feel threatened. I've heard millennials say that they don't feel listened to. I've heard younger people say that they are angry because the elder generation brushes aside the societal problems that they care about, such as a growing wealth gap the environment, and racism. I have heard other younger people say they're angry because they feel their motivations are not understood. And I must say, I have heard some in my generation respond to them with the second word of hostility. That word is contempt. Jesus goes on in Matthew 5 to address contempt directly. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So according to Jesus, insulting words like fool or idiot are also sins of violence, no less than the burning words of anger. Contempt is also murder of the heart. And like anger, contempt is widespread in the body of Christ. This is worth grieving. We claim to be people of the Bible but brush aside Jesus' clear warnings about contemptuous speech, which are echoed repeatedly throughout the Old and New Testament. I can say this confidently because I, myself, have thought, said, and heard these types of words. 
I see them all the time on social media. My generation and older often expresses contempt towards the younger generation. I would like you to stand up if you're less than 32 years old in the room. The hand of God is upon your generation. And the battle is fierce for your generation. And you need us standing by your side, supporting you, encouraging you, building you up, affirming you, and helping. And all too often, instead, you have heard us tear you down and build ourselves up at your expense. You've heard us minimize your concerns and not listen to you. This is wrong. I want to say it very clearly. This is wrong. And I myself apologize to you. I repent and I ask you to forgive me and our generation. Thank you. You may sit down. And of course, the younger generation also shows contempt, just as the older generation is no stranger to anger. Jesus is correct in that they are both sins of violence, like to one another. Contempt leads to anger, and anger breeds more contempt. If they are not resisted, inevitably thoughts and even actions of murder come into play. This is all demonically driven. The demons behind contempt and anger have had a field day in our nation in recent years. And we have opened up the door of the church to let them in. So what do we do? We close the door. To you fathers and mothers, your hearts must turn to the sons and daughters in our midst. Some of them are your actual sons and daughters. Some of them are your spiritual sons and daughters. Put away anger and contempt. Speak instead words of affirmation, affection, and love. To those of you in the younger generation, your hearts must turn to the fathers and mothers in your life. Put away anger, contempt, and distrust towards us. Speak instead words of honor and respect, asking us to walk with you. We must also recognize the damage. We have damaged each other in the older generations and in the younger. We have already, even if we don't do it from here forward, Lord willing, let it be, we have already spoken contemptuous and angry words that have offended. So what do we do? Jesus gives us a clear answer in the next verse. 
So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Reconciliation is necessary where there has been anger and contempt. Reconciliation removes hostility, repairs the damage, and restores unity. I'd like the prayer teams to come forward. And while they're coming, as a benediction, I would like to return to Jesus' words. The usual benediction at Hope Chapel at the end of a sermon is, go in peace to love and serve the Lord, which is a wonderful benediction. Today, I will just say the first word. Go. All of us in this room and on the live stream have some work to do. Jesus clearly says, go. Whether we are in the older or younger generation, go. Whether we are the offended ones or the ones who have caused offense, go. Go. Listen. Repent. Forgive. Go and be reconciled to your brother and your sister, to your father and your mother, to your son and your daughter. Go and begin to enter into the unity of the Trinity in new ways here today at Hope Chapel. Amen Amen. and amen.